This is Jim Perry, host of Euphemet, and I wanted to share some exciting news with listeners today as we launch the Euphemet Patreon. Many of you may have listened to this show since its original inception in 2015. Others have joined us last year or even this week, maybe even today. Well, what is for sure is that the original series that ran from 2015 to early 2018 has been unavailable and under lock and key for nearly a year. Until now. Starting today, members of our new Patreon group will have access to the Euphemet original series episodes, a new old classic released every week that has over 40 exclusive episodes of the original experimental paranormal series, which features in-depth interviews, audio docs, and adventures. And this week, we look back at our first conversation with Greg Newkirk on the notorious Kentucky Goblin case. That's right, it's the inciting incident for the popular documentary series Hellier, and I'll play a portion of that in this very announcement episode in just a bit. But first, if you haven't heard of Patreon, it's a subscription membership platform where we'll have three different membership tiers available, each offering unique and exclusive content that gets you closer to this very project and directly helping in producing new work on paranormal stories. The classic Kentucky Goblins episode will be our first archive release, but Patreon members will receive much more. In the initial tier entitled The Society of Euphemet, members gain access to exclusive podcast feed, featuring not only an original series episode each week, but a brand new long-form interview series, House of Mystic Mirrors, which features long-form interviews with thought leaders, writers, and investigators on all things esoteric. Patreon is an entirely opt-in situation. Listeners can still expect Obscura and a Season 2 of Euphemet for free on this very podcast feed. But what Patreon does is directly support those who work on this show. Euphemet entering into Season 2 and introducing Obscura, House of Mystic Mirrors, and the original series is a project without a network, without a budget, and will now, more than ever, rely on the support from our community. We will rely on you to help us continue telling these stories. It is the most direct form of co-manifestation, of co-creation, we now have the opportunity to really do this together. You can learn more about what we offer members and our three membership tiers at patreon.com euphemet. But I really wanted to give you something more than an ad here. So what follows is an excerpt. It was March 2016, and Greg was still reeling from receiving mysterious messages from unknown individuals. They called for help. They told of high strangeness, caves, creatures. The whole situation was overwhelming. What you will hear is the story that kicked off the Kentucky Goblins phenomenon. The episode that kicks off Hellier. Right now. In 2012, a defunct ghost hunting group's derelict website received an email from this guy in Kentucky. This guy, who we will call David, was panicked. His family's property was being terrorized and David needed help. So the Ghost Hunter Incorporated's website was so old that it hadn't even been updated in like eight years. It's gone now. But in 2012, David was lucky enough to have one of the members of the ragtag operation still occasionally checking the site's email account. And he happened to be Greg Newkirk, who over the years since the group's demise turned into a big-time investigator of the paranormal. Along with his co-adventurer and wife Dana, they've appeared on national talk radio shows, have a traveling occult museum, lecture events, and even operate their own investigative website. 
It was just David's luck that he may have found the right guy for the job. Hello, my name is David. I received your contact information through a mutual acquaintance who assures me that you are well equipped to investigate peculiar problems. Furthermore, I believe you may have interest in these events beyond any compensation that I am prepared to deliver in order to have these issues sorted. For the past six months, I have been living in a rural home located on the border of West Virginia and Kentucky, where my family is nightly assaulted by creatures that I have come to believe are of an extraterrestrial origin. These beings appear to be the size and stature of a small child, devoid of any facial features save for large oily eyes and lipless mouths. They frighten my children by peering through their bedroom windows, chirping at one another. They actively attempt to enter my home in the middle of the night. Last month they took my dog. The police refused to provide any further assistance, attributing the problems to wild animals and forwarding my complaints to the state game commission. I believe that they are coming from an abandoned mine located on the edge of my property. Though I am armed, I'm afraid that I'm far too frightened to enter the mine by my lonesome and cannot convince any sympathetic friends to accompany me, though I cannot blame them. I am convinced that the only answer is to collapse the mine. I believe this is where we can be mutually beneficial to one another. If you are prepared to assist me in this matter, I can offer you permission to record and document these events under the condition of anonymity. I can guarantee you evidence of these creatures which I assure you are not wild animals. Please respond ASAP. Thank you. So Greg thought it was a joke. How and why did this guy entrust GHI with investigating his claim in the first place? I'm, I'm actually looking at this picture of GHI. It's taken in 2000. Greg and his compatriots look like they're probably in high school and have maybe just come back from an insane clown posse show. <laughs> Two of the members hold handguns, other brandish axes of various size. Greg and one other member have matching zebra print bowling shirts. They were, as Greg put it in an article, 110% professional. Greg emails David back. He asks him for more details and evidence. He then posted the email to a paranormal message board that he frequented, as well as his Facebook account, and it quickly became a subject of fun speculation. Everyone had questions. Who is this guy? Why would he email a ghost hunting group for a space alien problem? Who was this mutual friend? Why would spacefaring beings be living in a cave? Is blowing up an abandoned mineshaft even legal? And of course, the question anyone with a passing interest in the paranormal was asking themselves, what if he's telling the truth? The next day, GHI had a message from David. Thank you for your prompt response. I do not blame you for being skeptical of my story. I appreciate you keeping an open mind about my situation and I am more than happy to provide you with as much information as I am able. I was given your contact information through a man by the name of Terry Rist. When these disturbances first began occurring, I was only inclined to confide in a personal friend who I knew had fringe interests. He offered to share my concerns with a man that had dealt with somewhat similar experiences in previous years. I accepted his offer. Within a week, I was informed that this gentleman had long since retired from pursuits of this kind, 
but was willing to provide me with contacts who may be willing to help. This is how I came to contact you. I do not have any answer to why other than a referral and a recommendation from a gentleman I do not know personally. I was under the impression that you would answer that question. I am located in Pike County, just outside of Kentucky. Is located roughly 30 to 60 minutes from the borders of Virginia and West Virginia, respectively. Most of Pike County is made up of small towns and rural communities. It is not uncommon to go days without seeing my closest neighbors. I moved to this area for the peace and quiet. I have received neither. I have lived in this area for just under seven months, and in that time the majority of the harassment has occurred within the past three. I did not become aware of any strangeness until early December, although that is only when I began to keep a record of these events. At first it was merely strange tracks in the snow around my home. I had initially imagined that they were some kind of animal, though it closely resembled a human footprint minus the heel. At that time, I was under the impression that it was simply a single creature. It wasn't until weeks later that I began to suspect that I was dealing with a number of what I thought were individuals hazing me upon my arrival to the area. At this point, I was incapable of keeping my dogs outdoors overnight. Any attempt to leave her unleashed would result in her barking herself hoarse until she was allowed back indoors. In the weeks leading up to this particular evening, I had awoken to find my shed doors open on several occasions. Many of my children's toys missing or moved, and my yard in general disarray. I had already given a report to the police, who were making it increasingly clear that they were not interested in my case barring physical harm or large-scale theft. The second week of January, I am having breakfast with my family when my five-year-old daughter begins talking about kids without hair. When my wife inquired about these kids, she informed us that she had spent the previous night watching them play in the yard. As you can imagine, this was some concern. I asked my daughter what these kids looked like. She told me that they were bald like grandpa and weren't wearing any clothes. The very same day I found the wreath that hangs inside our rear porch stuffed into our mailbox. I purchased and installed motion-activated floodlights the following day, and for a time the problem ceased. It wasn't until the end of February that our daughter informed us that the bald kids had returned. I was awoken to the sound of my daughter screaming, rushed to her bedroom only to meet her halfway down the hall. When my wife and I were finally able to calm her down enough to speak, she told us that the kids were trying to peer into her window, but they couldn't reach and instead had taken to tapping on it. She hasn't slept in her own bedroom since. It was that morning that I phoned the police for the second time, and they responded by finally sending a trooper to our residence. I informed him of the regular mischief, how I was unable to let my dogs outdoors after dusk, and of the bald kids. When we found the ground disturbed just under my daughter's bedroom window, the officer informed me, very matter-of-factly, that we were dealing with an animal, and I would be better off contacting the game commission than waste their resources any further. Almost every day for the following week, I would find some evidence that something or someone had been on my property the previous night. 
Smudges on the windows were not uncommon. Stones from the walkway dragged to the other side of the lawn, and I had found tears in the screen door. On Wednesday, the 7th of March, I finally witnessed the kids without hair for myself. The dog woke me up around 1.30 a.m., scratching at the back door and whimpering to be let out. I noticed that the motion floodlight was on and went to the kitchen window to check that the shed doors were still closed when I realized I could see the shadow of an individual cast across my lawn. From the angle I was positioned at the window, I could not actually see the source of the shadow or the floodlights. The dog was pacing circles around the back door and I could hear someone rifling through a box on the porch. Filled with a little more anger than common sense, the only reaction I could muster was to bang loudly on the window and yell, at which point I heard the screen door on the porch swing open and slam against the house. I heard what I can only describe as chirping at this point. It sounded much like a skunk, if more guttural. I then realized that there were more than two people on my property, and the shadow, which had been reacting as if it didn't know which way to run, was quickly joined by another. For a moment I watched as the shadows chirped at one another when I noticed a figure out of the corner of my eye. Standing in the flower bed just to the bottom left of my window was a small, humanoid figure with silky pale skin, completely hairless. Standing roughly four feet, it was looking in the direction of the shadows and had clearly come from around the left side of the house opposite the porch and had not noticed me as far as I could tell. Its face was devoid of features, save for large round eyes, very reminiscent in shape and color of a bird's eye. It had no nose to speak of and only a small slit for a mouth. It didn't appear to move its mouth as it chirped, sounding more as if noises originated from its throat. It was most certainly not a wild animal, and even more certainly not a child. I was too terrified to move and watched as the creature hopped to the others and together they scrambled into the woods on the right side of my property. It was clear that there was at least five in the group. I have not mentioned this particular incident to my wife. The only other person who I have spoken to about these creatures are yourself and the close friend who introduced me to our mutual friend, Mr. Wrist. I would prefer to keep these things that way and to approach this problem as discreetly as possible. Since that evening, my dog has gone missing from the porch, yet to return, and I can only imagine that his disappearance has to do with these creatures. I've gone looking for him during daylight hours, only to find many of my missing belongings scattered at the entrance to an abandoned mine shaft at the far edge of my property. I don't dare go inside. My friend has convinced me that my experience is similar to that of other visitation experiences providing me with material and references that back up his claims. I am aware of the outlandish nature of what I have told you, but I am afraid that I have no other explanation for what I have seen, at least at this time. I can see no other option than to seal the entrance to the mine. I cannot achieve this on my own and I am too frightened to try. I don't dare share this information with others for fear of ruining my career and the reputation of my family. I am prepared to compensate your travel expenses and offer you unrestricted access with whatever recording equipment that you desire, but only on the condition of complete anonymity. Beyond that, I have no other desire than to be rid of this problem. Please inform me of what you would like photographs of and where to send them. Thank you again. 
honestly, this story, reading it, it's really captivating, man. And it has everything in it. Oh, it gets it gets weirder. <laughs> okay, the, good. The stuff that's not that's not written. I mean, it, it's 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 even weirder. <sighs> I, I I really don't even know what to think about it, to be honest with you. I love it. I don't know. This April, Shudder is celebrating halfway to Halloween. Because Halloween is too much fun to celebrate just once a year, right? It's Shudder's biggest month of programming ever. And one of the biggest shows coming in April is the new season of Creepshow. Creepshow is a Shudder original series from showrunner Greg Nicotero, FX legend and executive producer on The Walking Dead. Based on George Romero's 1980s horror anthology film, Season 1 was the most-watched series in Shudder's history. Now they're back with nine nightmarish new takes that live up to the Creepshow tagline, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Among the season's many, many guest stars are horror royalty like Keith David, Barbara Crampton, Ashley Lawrence, and Ted Raimi. New episodes hit Shudder every Thursday in April. And thanks to our sponsor, AMC Network Shudder, you can watch it for free right after you finish this episode of Euphemet. To try Shudder for free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code Euphemet. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash Euphemet. You can watch one of my favorites, the absolute moody classic film from director Jacques Tourner, Cat People. Or how about the artsy supernatural film, Lose? Or a Spectre Vision classic like Mandy? You can watch AMC Network Shutter on your Apple TV like me, your phone, or about any other device and enjoy the largest, fastest growing human curated selection of thrilling entertainment. Some even call it the Netflix of horror. And new stuff is added weekly. It's just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. But you can try Shutter for 30 days for free and help support Euphemet while you're at it. Just go to Shutter.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use promo code Euphemet. So <laughs> I, gu I guess take us back to after you received that second message from David. Um, he describes events that have pretty much left his family in terror, you know, small hairless entities and, and someone who calls himself uh, Terry Wrist. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I think it's Terry, Terry Wrist. Terry Wrist. Terry, yeah, I think it's a, a play on the word terrorist. Is the, whole, is the whole idea there? Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Well, what did you, what did you make all of this when you when you had that second message in front of you? I thought it was a good story, but I didn't. I wasn't totally on board. I mean, anyone can anyone can write a great story, and I mean, I I didn't know who this Terry Wrist guy was. I had no idea who he was talking about. I still had no idea why he was contacting a a, a group of kids. On a, on a defunct website for a, a ghost hunting team that wasn't around. I mean, I mean, like I said, we'd never dealt with anything like this before. So none of it made sense to me. And I thought that it was just some kind of elaborate joke. I, I didn't really take it very seriously uh, until he sent the third email. Well, let, let's go back real quick. He mentions for the first time this Terry Wrist character, which could be a play on terrorist. Uh, what... Did that ring any bells at that time? You you didn't know this person, did you? Or what did you think about that? No idea. I had I had absolutely no idea who this person was. I I mean, it was it seemed like it was clearly a pseudonym for somebody, um, but it wasn't anything that rang any bells. And so, you know, the first thing I did is I went to to Google and I started to see who this person was. It's clearly a play on the word terrorist, uh, and the only references to this guy, uh, Terry Wrist was uh, 
this guy in the back of a couple. Uh, he was listed in in some obscure '90s books about uh, UFOs. Hmm. They were written by a, a guy. He's an occultist by the name of uh, Alan Greenfield. And in these books, he interviews this guy going by the pseudonym Terry Wrist, who claimed that he had been part of uh, a group of Vietnam veterans who spent their time going into alien cave bases located underground and clearing them out of little creatures that sounded quite a bit like uh, the ones that that David was experiencing. Wow. It was the only only reference I can find to this guy, Terry R. Wrist. Uh, so, you know, again, still kind of hard to swallow for me. Wow. And in his in his conversations with Alan Greenfield, I mean, does Terry report anything similar to David's account or just like the noises or what there were there was no reference that that i remember to any of the noises um the the description sounded a lot like you know the the typical grays uh which a, a lot of what david sound you know a lot of what david was talking about sounded a little bit like grays too uh but the one thing that really that really stuck out was the fact that these things were living in, in underground they were coming out of old mine shafts they had underground cave bases and uh that's that's where they lived and that's where he and this this group of of badass uh alien ass kickers They'd go down and they'd wipe these places out, kind of like David wanted us to do. Oh my gosh, that could—that's a movie. Why hasn't that happened yet? Or like a weird I comic know, right? book? <laughs> <laughs> I'd read it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, was this ringing a bell with Kentucky? Was there evidence that there were there were minds that this was uh, a possibility to be a thing? I mean, you know, I'd never—I'd I'd never been to Kentucky at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd never visited Kentucky. I knew nothing about Kentucky. Uh, the only thing that it, it seemed to have anything in common with was there were some themes that related to the Hopkinsville Goblins case that happened back in 1955. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in 1955, this family in this farmhouse was besieged by uh, these tiny creatures that uh, they thought were from outer space. And it still remains like one of the most well-documented cases of extraterrestrial contact because police saw this. I mean, 11, there were 11 witnesses that, that saw this. They fired on the creatures. Um, they've, they've got sketches from different eyewitnesses. Uh, so the, the themes of like these creatures coming out, being interested in the children specifically, looking in windows at night, and then uh, kind of disappearing off into the into the forest sounded a, a lot like what David was going through. Wow. But in my head, it was like, well, how does this, you know, connect? The thing is, the place that this was all supposed to be happening to David was far eastern Kentucky. Hmm. And where Hopkinsville happened was pretty far western Kentucky. So hundreds of miles. Well, well at that point, with, with that sort of information, you... You emailed Dave, right, and and requested some evidence for the second time. You know, I think in the article you mentioned that you reiterated that if he was, you know, truly serious about having you come to Kentucky, you know, you needed some pretty solid proof that you weren't being jerked around. And and he didn't reply for quite some time. Is that right? No, it was it was uh, I think it was uh, several weeks, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at that point, I'd given up. I was like, yeah, whatever. That was a joke, you know, because that's how a lot of this happens. You ask for evidence and no one can produce it. And then lo and behold, several weeks later, I get another email from him. And in the email were a bunch of attachments to 
pictures of three-toed footprints. I mean, they they were clear as day. Uh, and the strangest part is, you know, at, at this point, I've, I'd never investigated anything like this before. I had pretty much strictly stuck to ghosts and poltergeists and even a little bit of Bigfoot. And what I picked up from uh, hanging out with some Bigfoot hunters was, you know, they always look for the dermal ridges. Sure. And, and these had dermal ridges. It was really striking and so at this point i was like all right i'm on board i'm on board wow that's amazing and so what did you end up doing with these photographs when he sent them did you get any other input or was there anything else besides dermal ridges that rang out to you or or basically what was your next step with this well the first thing i did is i sent them to anybody i knew who was a bigfoot investigator uh or who worked with animals on a regular basis and i said you know is there a kind of animal that can make this track there wasn't. No one could find anything that looked anything like it. Uh, I said, you know, I've there have been sightings of 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 three toed of three toed creatures in this area. Could it could this possibly be fake? Uh, and, you know, one of the things the Bigfoot hunter said was, you know, we've seen three toed Bigfoot footprints, but we, we don't know what it's going to be. We can't tell how big they are. So they couldn't tell how big these footprints were. So like we can't tell and measure them against what we know about three-toed Bigfoots. But we can tell you this. They they look very real. They don't look like something that someone could have faked very easily. And so, you know, that was just more ammo for me to actually go, all right, well, this is worth looking into. And at that point, uh, did you exchange any more emails with David? Uh, yeah, I'd sent him I sent him another email back. And I think at this point it was it was like, yeah, I, I, I believe you. OK, all right. <laughs> all right. All right. You can you convinced me enough. Uh, I said, you know, send more pictures, uh, send photos that show how big these are uh, and, you know, for God's sake, try and try and get the creatures. You know, if, if you're yeah. seeing these so often, do your best to try and get a photo of these actual creatures. And it wasn't too long before he sent another email. And this one did have more photographs and he has a ruler next to the footprint. So you can see that these things were about half a foot. Wow. Uh, so so clearly they weren't the three-toed Bigfoot footprints because these were very small. On some of the images, the dermal ridges are even more visible. And the weirdest part about what, what he'd said in this email was he actually did include images of the creatures. What? Um, he, he actually had photos of the goblins themselves. What did what did they look like? How clear were these? What did they look like? In In true paranormal fashion, not clear at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the most compelling image shows what looks to be like a small, pale humanoid figure that looks like it is kind of crouched around a tree looking out uh, towards the camera. And when David had taken these photos, he said that he actually got them from his back porch, uh, took as many as he possibly could. And then he and his brother in law actually hit the road. And they said, we were not sticking around. Um, I'm done with this. Uh, there were some other photos in there, too. One of them looks almost show like a side profile hmm. of the creatures. I mean, again, it's it's pretty blurry. But when you look at it, you can see what looks like the side profile of what looks like a typical gray alien. Um, you can see like the, the high cheeks and the pointed head and the big the big round dark eye. Uh, so, you know, at this point, I'm I'm absolutely all in. I, I, I want. <laughs> to know more i want to go down one of the last things that he's expressed was that he he wanted us to blow up the mine 
That was just a piece of a much longer interview that can be found right now in a special Patreon members-only feed at patreon.com slash that. But again, that's not all members can listen to. Next week, we'll be dropping our first episode of our new long-form interview series, House of Mystic Mirrors. In the first episode, we dig deep into Memphis hoodoo with writer Tony Kale, and here for you now is an excerpt of that very talk. You mentioned um, meeting a root worker. Can you explain a little bit about that, what this person did, you know, what they do as a practice? Sure. My initial meeting was through uh, a friend of mine that I, I uh, had gone to grade school with and um, learned about her through, uh, through a friend. I, I had known the family for years but had no idea about the, the uh, lady in the family who practiced and until I was, was told by uh, a, a local that uh, there was a woman at a, uh, a small uh, convenience store out in a rural uh, area of West Tennessee that uh, was known to come into the store. And she would uh, walk in and she'd uh, shake her keys and uh, she would walk around the perimeter of the store and she would announce to everyone in the store that there's no more voodoo in here. Not long afterwards, there was a a local county judge who was in this particular store, and he was complaining about an injury that he had received, and his knee was giving him a lot of trouble. And locals say that uh, this this little African American elderly lady who had been coming to the store shaking her keys here and there um, said, "You know, I, I've got something for you. I think I can help you out." So. Uh, she left the store and returned with a, a small jar of, of some type of herbal salve. And uh, she told the judge, she said, put this on your knee and I promise you, you'll feel better. And uh, the the word was that in a few days, the judge came back and said, you know, he was no longer experiencing pain mm-hmm. and that whatever this woman had given him had, had worked. So I'm I set it upon myself to, to go find this lady. And, and again, I... I didn't know at that point that I'd known her family for years, and it was a friend of mine's grandmother. I went and visited her in a little bitty small wooden house uh, out in a very rural part of of West Tennessee, and uh, I go to her door, and there's this this little lady in a gingham dress and has a little head covering, and um, she invites me in, and and I, I just asked her, I said, I understand you do some healing. And she says, you know, I, I, I try to help people all I can. And God has given me this gift that I use. And also my father and my uncle taught me how to use it. And um, she is just that. She was a, a root worker. She would use herbs. She would use roots and plants local to the area uh, combined with, with uh, spiritual wisdom to, to, to help others. And she was the real deal. She, she didn't charge for her services. Uh, typically, families might bring her food um, and, and things she needed, but uh, she didn't charge for her services. And she wasn't in it for the money. She uh, practiced because she believed she was called to that work, as historically we have seen a lot of traditional root workers. And that is they, they feel this, this spiritual calling uh, to this particular folk tradition. 
Very interesting. Um, you know, I wonder how much of the knowledge of hoodoo, uh, in, in, especially in terms of uh, how to practice it, right, uh, is just passed down generationally. Is, is that the most common way? You know, that seems to be a very common way. It, it's, uh, it definitely has seemed to be uh, an oral tradition. Um, you know, we do have books, and there, there actually was a, a period in history where uh, a lot of hoodoo artifacts became uh, commercialized. Mm. And there are some academics that sort of look at that time as the, the, uh, the watering down of, of the hoodoo culture. But um, the, the true practices... Um, and that we we have seen historically among root workers and conjurers do appear to be oral traditions uh, passed on um, through the generations and and through sometimes from healer to um, uh, apprentice. Um, but but uh, yeah, it definitely does seem to be a, a, an oral tradition. Yeah, what a what a strong impact that can make on the practitioners when someone they respect or someone they look up to, or someone they're related to, passes down, like, really these access points to alleged powers, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, the uh, uh, the one of the uh, people that uh, I write about in the book, in, in the closing chapter on the, the future of, of hoodoo, is I mention a, a local conjurer um, that uh, we call Doc Macon. And uh, that's that's not his real name, but uh, that's that's the name we gave him in the text. And <laughs> uh, but Doc Macon um, actually shared the story about when he was a child. He was born. Um, he was born with uh, the umbilical cord, his mother's umbilical cord, connecting with him uh, around his neck, mm. and and she believed him to be dead, and so she placed him uh, actually in a ditch. And uh, left him for dead. Well, his grandmother, who was a root worker, said she knew that he wasn't dead. And so she she went and found him. And uh, she took care of him, cleaned him up, and raised him. Uh, And he said that she passed on her traditions to him. And he said that uh, she she told him that he was born with with the veil. And uh, that he did have the cowl over his face. And this was an indicator that he was spiritually... Uh, empowered and she taught her traditions that she was raised uh, to teach to him and, and pass them on and, and he still practices them today and his his heritage is um, uh, Native American uh, southern southern uh, Tennessee uh, with a little bit of Native American and um, but he he definitely carries that on as well so yeah definitely I think the the apprentice receiving the blessing, uh, from the teacher is is definitely a uh, a powerful aspect. One of the things I personally like about Euphemet is that it allows a freedom to explore a very wide range of the strange. And I think that is what members can expect for our, our Patreon content, in addition to being a part of an inner circle. Members will have exclusive access to guests and myself via group hangouts online, things like Patreon Lens, and exclusive commentary and articles. My hope is that it becomes a great option for those listeners that have asked for more, and that we can continue building this and telling more of these important stories together. 
Thanks so much for listening to this Patreon announcement, and I hope everyone enjoyed this week's debut of Obscura. We'll be back next week, but until then, keep looking up. Thank you.